Hello, Salam, Diagwit, and welcome to the History of Modern Iran podcast, episode 12, The Reuters Concession. On the 19th of April, 1873, Nasr al-Din Shah, suffering from a mild chest infection, left his private apartments and went forth onto the streets of Tehran. Accompanied by senior court and government officials, the Shah and his entourage moved through thick crowds of curious onlookers until they reached the city racecourse. After enjoying the races from the comfort of his royal pavilion, the Shah conducted a quick audience with foreign dignitaries before heading north. His destination? Europe. Nasser al-Din was probably the first Iranian monarch to travel to Europe since the Achaemenid invasions of Greece in the 5th and 6th centuries BCE. He was the first to ever do so without an army at his back. The journey ahead was long, but Nasser al-Din was getting well used to travel. From the 1860s onward, the Shah was increasingly footloose. In the early part of his reign, Nasr al-Din had sought to demonstrate his sovereignty through warfare. However, both the Anglo-Persian War and a costly 1861 military expedition against the Turkmen of Merv had ended in defeat. Rather than risking more military humiliation, the Shah chose to undertake official tours as a safer and cheaper means of asserting his authority, legitimacy and sovereignty. In 1867, for example, he had spent several months in Khorasan, an area that, during the 1850s, had been convulsed by the Salah Revolt and subjected to frequent Afghan and Turkmen raiding. By his lengthy visit, the Shah was saying, in essence, here is a province that was once an embattled and bloody frontier. Now my authority is so secure in these lands that I take my leisure in Mashhad and Shirvan as if they were the pleasure gardens of Tehran. Indeed, according to an official dispatch, the Shah's purpose in visiting the province was, quote, to restore the dignity and authority of the state which had been lost in the Merv incident, end quote. The Shah's journey to Europe served a similar purpose. The trip showed that the state was secure enough that the Shah could leave his country, a testament to the high degree of internal stability that now prevailed in Iran. It was also a demonstration of sovereignty. The Shah, by attending official functions and associating with European czars, queens and emperors on equal terms, could demonstrate that the Gajar monarchy was here to stay and not about to suffer the fate of other eastern dynasties like the Mughals of India. The official trip to Europe was largely organised by the Shah's new right-hand man. Mirza Hussein Khan Moshir al-Dawleh Sepa Salar, who will call Moshir al-Dawleh because... Gajar honorifics are too damn long, became the leading statesman of Iran in 1870. The new premier 
had previously served in India and in the Ottoman Empire, and was part of the same foreign service clique of reformers that had spearheaded the abortive reform efforts of 1858 to 64. His rise to power signalled the Shah's return to a pro-reform agenda after the conservative reaction against Malcolm Khan and the Faramush Khanes in the early 1860s. Moshir al-Daleh was sincerely committed to enacting change in Iran, but faced a number of significant obstacles. Some were external, such as the presence of influential conservatives in the cabinet. Others were specific to al-Daleh himself. The vizier lacked either the integrity or the stubbornness of an Amir Kabir, while his more or less open homosexuality earned him few friends at court or in the government. Still, al-Daleh and the reformers were positive about the renewed possibility of change. They hoped that, by exposing the sovereign to Western technology, ideas and institutions, the Shah would be convinced of the need for further reforms and westernization in Iran. Indeed, Nasser al-Din's European journey coincided with important modernising initiatives in Iran itself, such as the establishment of a postal service and a government mint. Other Middle Eastern monarchs had travelled abroad in the 19th century. The Ottoman Sultan Abdulaziz, for example, had undertaken a tour of Europe in 1867. One notable feature of the Shah's European tour was that he kept a diary of his trip and published it upon his return to Tehran. The work became a popular success in Iran and even reached a curious European readership. You might feel an urge to read it. Don't. The Shah's diary is a fairly tedious itinerary with little insight into either the Shah himself or his encounter with the West. However, it is written in clear, simple and unaffected Persian, which made it accessible and appealing to a literate Iranian public curious about the wonders of Farangistan. The text played no small part in encouraging a broader move within Persian literature, from florid and highly stylized prose to a more simple, clear and unadorned mode of writing. When the Shah returned to Tehran in September of 1873, he did not receive a warm reception. During his absence, word had gotten out of a dubious business deal between the Shah's government and the businessman Julius von Reuter, the details of which shocked the Iranian elite and public alike. Baron Paul Julius Freiherr von Reuter to give him his full title, was a German-Jewish immigrant to Britain and is perhaps best known as the founder of Reuters News Agency. Reuters News Agency revolutionised journalism in the 19th century by making use of the then state-of-the-art technology of the telegraph to transmit news with unprecedented speed. Von Reuters' newspapers outperformed his slower competitors and made his family into one of the richest in Britain. The deal he agreed with the Shah 
would become known as the Reuter Concession after its principal beneficiary. A concession is an agreement whereby a government gives an individual or company exclusive rights to exploit natural resources or operate a certain industry for a designated period of time. In return, the government receives a certain share of the profit, a licensing fee, or both. Concessions were nothing new in Iran. The Shah had previously granted concessions for telegraph lines and had attempted to do the same for railways. What set the Reuter concession apart was just how much the monarch gave away. Reuter was promised a monopoly over all railway construction in Iran for a period of 70 years. The necessary land and much of the raw material for these railways would be provided free of charge by the Iranian state, while the materials and men employed in the project would be largely tax-exempt. Reuter was also guaranteed mining rights, permission to form a national bank, control over water infrastructure, forestry and uncultivated land, and a monopoly over tariff collection for a period of 20 years. In return, Reuter committed to constructing a railway linking the Caspian Sea and the Persian Gulf, and to providing the government with 20% of the profits accrued from the railways. It was a great deal for Reuter. Almost everyone else was baffled why Tehran had chosen to give away so much for so little. Lord Curzon, the future Viceroy of India, described it as, quote, the most complete and extraordinary surrender of industrial resources of a kingdom into foreign hands that has possibly ever been dreamt of, much less accomplished in history. End quote. It was nothing less than the sale of a significant chunk of Iran's sovereignty and economy, given away for a pittance. Why did the Shah ever agree to such a deal? To answer this, we have to bear in mind Iran's unstable economic and fiscal situation. We talked about the Iranian economy at the time of Nasser al-Din's coronation, way back on episode 3. A lot had changed by 1870. In the 22 years of Nasser al-Din Shah's reign, foreign trade had expanded rapidly. In 1860, Iran's total foreign trade was three times what it had been at the start of the century. Between 1860 and 1913, it would quadruple. As foreign trade increased, the Iranian market became flooded with Russian tea and cheap manufactured goods from Britain. While part of the reason for this high level of penetration were the low prices and high quality of Western manufactured goods, British and Russian importers also benefited from favourable import duties imposed under unequal treaties. These import duties gave importers unfair advantages over domestic Iranian merchants. For example, a British consul in Tabriz noted that, whereas a European merchant paid 5% duty on his imports, an Iranian paid a 7.5% tax on textiles and 14% on sugar, as well as a road tax every time his goods passed through an Iranian town. By the 1870s, Iran was starting to experience a severe trade deficit. 
The country imported high-value goods from abroad, while with the sole exception of carpets, it exported low-value commodities such as livestock, wool and raw cotton. This large trade deficit was devastating for Iran's currency. Whenever an Iranian merchant wanted to purchase, let's say, Sheffield steel cutlery, they first had to buy British sterling. Whenever a British aristocrat wanted to buy a Persian carpet for their drawing room, they had to buy Iranian tomans. Since there was a lot more demand for European cutlery, clothing and machine tools than there was for Persian carpets, wool and mules, the value of the British pound increased while that of the Toman plummeted. The trade deficit on its own would be cause for concern. But Iran also faced the problem of having a silver-backed currency in an age of gold. For most of recorded history, silver and gold had been highly stable in terms of relative value. A Roman merchant in the 1st century AD could be reasonably certain that the value of one unit of gold would roughly correspond to between 12 and 15 units of silver. An American Minuteman returning to his hometown after the Revolutionary War could be equally certain of the same thing. In the 19th century, however, the discovery of vast new deposits of gold in the American West caused the value of gold to decrease as bullion flooded the world market. As gold became less expensive, silver became more valuable in comparison. In fact, it got to the point where silver became more desirable as a commodity than as a means of exchange. Across the world, silver coins disappeared from purses and cash registers as opportunistic traders melted silver coins down to be sold in the more valuable form of bullion. Western governments responded to the disappearance of silver currency by switching to a gold standard backed by government gold bullion reserves. This sudden demonetization of silver caused its value to suddenly drop. For countries on the gold standard, this was not a major problem. For Iran, however, with its silver-linked currency and an almost total lack of gold reserves, the adoption of the gold standard was a huge deal. As the value of silver began to plunge, the Toman followed, causing massive domestic inflation. This incipient monetary and fiscal crisis represented a catch-22 for the Shah and his ministers. Government expenditure, especially on the military, was increasing faster than revenue was. What revenue the government did raise was denominated in tomans, which were losing their real value due to the decline in the price of silver. Concessions, according to the reasoning of senior Iranian statesmen, were a logical solution to Iran's need for hard currency, increased export capacity and infrastructural investment. Not all concessions were bad ideas. For example, the Karun River concession of 1888, which opened up Iran's only navigable waterway, benefited both Iranian and foreign commerce. However, 
Other concessions were simply monopolies that allowed shady European speculators to exploit the wealth of Iran after providing government and palace officials with generous bribes. The Reuter concession fell into the latter category. An utterly lopsided agreement, secured primarily thanks to the inexperience, naivete, desperation and corruption of Nasser al-Din and his advisers. The Reuter concession was agreed in 1872, but didn't become publicly known until the summer of 1873. Almost immediately, opposition began to develop at home and abroad. The Russians were annoyed by the fact that a British subject was taking control of so much of Iran's infrastructure. As far as they were concerned, the whole agreement was simply a sinister plot by London to seize strategic advantage in the country. In reality, the British government were just as surprised by the concession as the Russians were. Reuter had concluded the agreement behind the backs of foreign office mandarins, who feared that the concession would destabilise relations with Russia. Either way, British officials thought the concession was crazy and were sceptical about Reuter's ability to actually make good on any of the wild promises he had made to the Shah. This scepticism was shared by investors, few of whom wanted to buy stock in Reuter's shady new venture. The British Foreign Office had no interest in supporting what they regarded as irresponsible adventurism on the part of Reuter. The biggest opposition to the concession was domestic. When the Shah returned to Tehran, he found that a miniature coup had taken place. Led by his favourite wife, who was furious with her husband after having been sent back to Iran during Nasser al-Din's tour of Europe, a coalition of senior princes, powerful ulama and pro-Russian politicians seized power in the capital, demanding that the Reuter concession be rescinded immediately. This coalition placed most of the blame for the Reuter concession on the widely disliked Mashir al-Dawleh. This coalition placed most of the blame for the Reuter concession on the widely disliked Moshir al-Dawleh, who they regarded as a cat's paw for the British. Tensions were so high that the Shah didn't include his premier in his homecoming retinue, leaving a shaken al-Dawleh to lie low in the city of Rasht until the controversy died down. The Shah was able to restore order only by unilaterally cancelling the Reuter concession and temporarily demoting al-Dawleh. Although the Reuter concession was repudiated almost as quickly as it was agreed, the whole debacle was a sign of things to come. In the last decades of the 19th century, European capital, in the form of concessions and loans, would continue to penetrate Iran. Much as the Reuter concession had done, this increasing Western presence in the country would generate resentment and resistance. In the early 1890s, this growing displeasure with imperialism through economics culminated in a movement that, for a time, threatened the very existence of the Gajar regime, the Tobacco Revolt.
Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a five-star review on iTunes, Spotify, or whatever podcasting app you use. If you want to get in touch, you can follow at modern underscore Iran on Twitter or email directly to historyofmoderniranpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, goodbye, Slon, Khodafis.